Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, good. I want to tell you about the worst job I ever had in my life. It was at the happiest place on earth. It was not Disneyland, my friends. It was Family Fun Center. Family Fun Center. I was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 16-year-old, so excited to have my first job. Now that I'm older, I'm like, why was I excited to have my first job, you know? I had a uniform, I had a name tag. I was ready. I was positive, I was energetic. I couldn't wait to start making the big bucks. I think I was making like $6.50 an hour, okay? I bought you a lot back then, right? I was so excited. I, they started me in the, uh, working the Ferris wheel in the quote-unquote fun zone, okay? You know how bad of an idea it is to put a 16-year-old that has five minutes of training on a Ferris wheel? Do you know how many children I got stuck on that Ferris wheel? It's about 30 feet high. I heard more kids crying at that Ferris wheel than I've heard in my whole life. I always forgot. You have to, if you don't notice, like you're supposed to space out people on the Ferris wheel. Nah, just get them on in here, just all up, and they just get stuck all the time. So they moved me away from the Ferris wheel to the uh, go-karts, right? Go-karts are supposed to be fun. You know what's not fun? Breathing in carbon monoxide all day long. I felt like when I left, I smoked a couple pack of cigarettes by the end of the day. I had so much smoke in my lungs, it was awful. I also learned that for the go-karts, I learned that uh, I learned how to apply emergency treatment to people because um, I, I had a coworker who got jammed between two go-karts when an eight-year-old didn't know the difference between the gas pedal and the brake pedal. So he was yelling and crying, and I was like in shock, didn't know what to do, and I didn't do anything, so my, treat, my, uh, my emergency skills did not get put to use, okay? So I had, I had a summer of just progressively getting more and more bitter and frustrated by the end of the summer, okay? And it all culminated when I was asked to clean the bathroom from hell, Okay, I, it was like the end of the day, I was like sweaty and tired and I was literally about to clock out and my manager gets on the radio and says, hey Brooks, I need you to go check the bathrooms. And I was like, dude, you know I'm off in like 30 seconds. You're going to do this to me? Fine. So I, I went to the first bathroom, fine. Checked it, did it, no problem. Got to the last bathroom. And I went in, and it looked a little rough, but I eventually was like, you know what, I'm, I, I'm just going to do this, whatever, fine. So I cleaned it, and I left. And I was literally about to put my stuff away, and I got a call on the radio that says, Brooks, did you clean the bathroom? And I said, Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, yes, sir, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah, I'm like, okay, uh-huh, yes, I did. He said, meet me in the bathroom. So I said, okay, fine, sir. So we, I went over to the bathroom, I go in the door, and I'm like standing there, and he's like, and I said, yeah, like, what, what's wrong? And he says, take off your sunglasses. I took off my sunglasses, and literally, there was like human feces all over the wall, and somehow, somehow, some parent must have taken a child and just like sprayed the wall. I don't know what happened, but somehow it was all over the place. And he looked at me and he's like, you didn't see this? And I said, I had sunglasses on and I, I'm, I gotta go. And he's like, you need to clean this, right? So I went from being like, at the beginning of the, the summer, I was so excited and had such a great attitude. And by the end of the summer, I was done with the, f the most f beautiful place on the planet. See, my, my attitude was very positive and it became, it ended very awfully, to be honest with you. 
Um, but it was interesting. I worked with a guy. I met a guy who had been there for a long time. And he was what you'd say cut from a different cloth. He was someone that had a really positive attitude. And he did all the same things that I did. A matter of fact, he was once asked to do something that I could not believe they'd ask anyone to do. You know, at the golf courses, they have those, those ponds, you know? They're, they're supposed to be like, like, I don't know, they're supposed to just be for looks. But sometimes the balls get in there. I don't know if you know this, but animals go in there and die. Food goes in there. It's bad, right? He was, he was approached and they said, we need you to clean the bottom of all of these ponds because it's starting to get like festering on the top of the water. So this guy, no joke, grabbed a, a snorkel and a mask, jumped in and snorkeled and cleaned all of these ponds. Here's the crazy thing. He never complained once. It was almost like that job, what we were asked to do, didn't take away his dignity. His attitude and the way that he served brought dignity to that job. For him, there was purpose to that. And see, we're going to read a little bit today about how Jesus did something equally crazy, equally is mind-blowing. There was real purpose in what he was doing. There's a reason for it. And, and he wanted the disciples to learn something about him, to, to learn about who he was and the way that God thinks. And it had a lot to do with their purpose 2,000 years ago. But the crazy thing is it has a ton to do with our purpose today too. So if you can, let's go in our Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 1, and we're going to start there. Let me give you a little context of where we're at in John chapter 13. Jesus was soon to be heading towards the cross. The end of his ministry was coming to a culmination of this work that he was going to do. And it also was very close to what they called the Passover festival. If you look at verse 1, it says it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus and his disciples were going to get together. Passover festival was a, uh, a, a celebration that they did once a year. It was a seven-day long festival where they looked back and they remembered how they were once slaves in Egypt. If you remember Moses, let my people go, that whole story. But from that moment on, they celebrated. God actually told them, I want you to remember this. They commemorated how they were at the lowest of society. They were, will, they were forced against their will to be in bondage as slaves to the masters of Egypt. And God served them by miraculously pulling them out of there. And they remember that. They celebrated that. So that is the background that we're going to read in this story. So let's read together. John chapter 13, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simeon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay. Verse four, so he got up from the meal, he took out his outer clothing, or he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. In this culture, washing of the feet was something that was saved for a servant. 
A matter of fact, the Jews despised this. They saw it as such an undignified thing to do that they wouldn't even make a Jew servant do this. They would require a Gentile to do this. Just imagine for a second that you live in a culture where you walked everywhere or if you took some animals with you, you had sandals on, your feet were dirty, they were smelly. Oftentimes, they were probably very hard underneath because of how much and how hard their feet worked. So whenever they would come to a meal, they would sit down and, and if they had someone that would do it, the idea of washing your feet was like one of the most like therapeutic, nice, lovely, restful things you could do. So while the disciples are all sitting down, having a meal, well, actually, they're not, in this culture, you don't sit on a chair, you lean down, so your feet are actually kind of behind you, and you're leaning on the table. So while they're leaning on the table, Jesus, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, gets up without saying anything, takes off his outer coat, grabs a towel, wraps around his waist, like you'd read multiple times in the Gospels, where the, those who are servants would do. And he literally got on his hands and knees and grabbed a foot and started pouring water on it and, and cleaning it. And then he'd go to the next person and he would do it. And then he'd, he'd pour water on it and he'd sit there and just look at them. And then he'd walk to the next person. And all of them were staring at him like wide-eyed, like, what are you doing? At this time, the, the Roman emperors, they would actually use something like this to publicly shame someone. They would take one of their rulers, or senators, and if they made them wait on them in a meal, it was considered one of the most dishonoring things you could possibly do. Because honor and shame were so important in this culture. So by doing something like this, in everybody's eyes, it was a, something that only those who had low honor would do. So for Jesus to do this, the one that literally threw the stars in the sky, that put the spot onto Jupiter, the one that created all of us, literally came down and he did this for his disciples. Let's read verse six. Let's see the response here. Look at verse six. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, uh, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Am I really seeing this? Jesus said to him, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And Peter saying, oh, no, 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 Lord. This is way too beneath you. No, 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 no. You will never wash my feet. No, 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 no. And Jesus says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Ooh. Peter, you want, you, unless I do this, there's the door. Because there's something bigger going on I want you to understand. He says, then Lord, okay, all right. Then um, uh, I want you to like uh, wash uh, all of me here, okay? So not just my hands and my feet and my head. Just let's do it. Just dunk me. Let's do it right now if that's what it takes. And Jesus said, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Interesting. So in this situation, Jesus is talking more. It's more than just this act of washing the feet. There's something bigger going on. He's using, he kind of changes the language. He's talking about bathing. Well, there's, there's a new understanding that he's trying to wash them in, okay? He's trying to bathe them in this idea of who he is, what he feels, what he wants for them as his followers, and who he is as God. And then let's look at verse, let's look at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand, he said, what I have done for you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Well, let's focus on verse 14 and 15 together. It says this, now that, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So like I said, this is much bigger, okay? So all of us, let's think this is much beyond just the singular act of service. He wanted them to follow his lead. This obviously was something that they had not fully gained. They had not understood about Jesus at this point. I mean, think of this. Jesus saved this illustration, this teaching, to the very end, so before he's been crucified, this is the time he shows them this. He wanted them to understand a new idea. Of what does leadership look like in the kingdom of God? Jesus is laying out, if you want to be like me, then you need to be a servant. Anyone that comes after me, that calls on the name of Jesus, that says that I am a follower of Jesus, you know what they should also say with you? And a servant. We lay our lives down with love like Jesus the cool thing is here, and this is something I wanted to be really clear. We are not saved by our service. We are saved to service. Do you understand the distinction? We are given God's gift of relationship freely. But part of following him, if we want to be like him, is to be following his footsteps as a servant. Leaders in his kingdom are servants first and foremost. That is why I Myself, us in this room, we are commissioned to serve like Jesus. One of the reasons that God has put us on this planet is to be like him, to serve like him. We need to have that same mindset of Christ, that he didn't serve by compulsion or guilt. Because look at, look at the backdrop here. Remember, where this is right before the Passover meal? You got the Passover where the Jews were being forced will, against their will to serve. And Jesus is now saying, I am showing you a new way. I am serving, not being forced. I'm doing this willingly. And check this out. This does not undignify me. I bring dignity to this. This is who Jesus is. This is our master. This is the one that we follow. We know that, that Jesus lovingly laid down his life for his friends. So love is central to our mentality of serving. It's one thing to know that, but it's another thing to live it out. Let's look at verse 13. Excuse me. Yeah, let's look at verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do these things. So here's the deal. Christianity has never been a spectator sport. All of us, how many of you are going to watch Super Bowl today? I should say, how many of you are not going to watch Super Bowl? Everyone in here. Oh, we got some people not watching the Super Bowl. Okay, there we go. Chiefs versus Eagles, right? That is a spectator sport for us. If you thought that, you, that it was a good time to join them on the football field and participate in that game, you would be arrested, right? <laughs> we will see people probably trying to run across the field doing something ridiculous during the Super Bowl, or at least they'll always pan away. But Jesus invites us to do something different. We are not called to sit and watch other people serve. 
we are all called to get up out of our seat and to join, the, to join what's happening right in front of us. So here's the radical thing, is that Jesus wasn't just talking about us serving in the church. It's much bigger than that. He was inviting us to radically be like him, to radically change the world, not by our strength and by our political power. No, by willfully laying down our lives for people. He invites us to do the same. So we might then be asking ourselves, well, what, what do I have to offer? What, what do I have to bring to this, this team? But Paul, we're going to look at here in a moment, Paul is about to show us that each of us have been equipped by God to make a difference in this world. He has equipped us to serve him, that there was great purpose in our lives. And we'll look at it together. So let's turn our Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. Let me turn there myself. Well, what is Corinthians about? 1 Corinthians is a book written by Paul the Apostle. We know that he was in the city called Corinth. Okay, He started a church in a city called Corinth. It was a big... Um, uh, it, was a, it was like a port city. It was a very important city in, in the world at the time. And, and this guy, Paul, goes in. He shares the gospel. People get saved. And he starts a church. We know he was there for about a year and a half. And he started hearing when he left some major problems that were happening in the church. Well, there was like divisions. Some were like, hey, I, I'm from Paul. Paul was the one that told me about Jesus, so I'm, Paul's my dude. And other people are like, no, 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 I, I heard all about this from Apollo, so I follow Apollos. And, and Paul's like, no, 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 you're missing the point. There was division in the church. There were moral issues that were starting to creep up that were, the people were kind of getting confused and, and starting to act like their old self. And there was some spiritual pride that was happening. And, and so we pick up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, learning about how God has uniquely designed us and equipped us differently, but it's the same God who called us. Let's read verse four together. There are different kinds of gifts, okay? Spiritual abilities, ways that God has made us, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God who is working. So there's, there's different gifts that God has given to each of us. There's different ways by which we are to use those gifts. So however many people we have in this room, it's that amount of ways to use them, multiplying it. And it's God who ultimately shows his power, his love for the world through us. And it's all different and it's all unique. Every one of us is uniquely designed by God in a powerful way. My favorite building in Chicago is the Hancock. It's this black one with the two antennas on the top. Kind of looks like a robot, you know, a transformer. Um, I used to go to... Um, I used to go to college in Chicago. I went to the Moody Bible Institute and I lived in Chicago and I'd always want to come down to Michigan Avenue and on Michigan Avenue there's all these amazing buildings but there was one building that always caught my eye. It was the Hancock. I love this building. 
I would oftentimes go to this building, I'd walk by it all the time, and uh, it's, it's, it's got some serious history to it. It's designed in the 60s. And today's value cost about almost $800 million to make. And it was something that, that the designer had a very specific goal in mind with this building. If you look at it up close, it's very cool. It's very different. There was condominiums in this place. There's uh, office buildings. There's restaurants. Can I give you all a tip this morning? Can I give you a tip? Secret tip right here? You guys want it? Okay, that's what I'm talking about. All right. So if you go to Chicago and you go to the uh, 94th floor, there's an observation deck. It'll cost you like almost 30 bucks, okay? You go in there with all the rest of the suckers that go in there and they look at all the city and it's so cool. They spend all this money. If you just went literally two floors up, you know what you can find? A lounge that you can get a little drink, listen to a little jazzy jazz, and you can just sit and see the whole city without anyone around you, and it, it only costs you the amount of a drink. So there you go. There's a free gift for you. Skip the observation deck, go two floors up, get off like you know what you're doing, and then you'll enjoy it, okay? So here's what's cool about this building. It's got X's, if you can see, on the outside of the building. This is called a tubular system. So the designer uh, had a very particular shape in mind when he built this building. See, Chicago is known for its what? It is called the blank city. Windy city, right? Not just because the politics are going like crazy back and forth, but because there's a tremendous amount of wind that comes off Lake Michigan. So he built this like this because this structure particularly protects and helps the building when the wind comes crazy. It also helps with earthquakes, but also it, it provides an open floor plan so you can see all of the city. So when an architect designs any building, he always asks that same question. What is its function? Why was it made? And what is it supposed to, to become? And here's the crazy thing. It's the same with God in our lives. God designed each of us uniquely, designed for his purpose. Each of us have a unique shape, a unique way that God has built us. And it's really all for what God wants to do through our lives. So this is why it's so important that we identify the way that God has shaped us. Now, shape is an acronym. It was come up with by, an, um, I think, Rick Warren, maybe, Eric Reese. And it, it, it's an acronym that describes our own uniqueness. See, he said this. I thought this is a really great quote that I pulled from Rick. God never wastes anything. He would not give you abilities and interests uh, talents and gifts and personality and life experiences unless he intended to use them for his glory. So let's look at then, so can we do that today? Can we unpack the way that God has made us? Does that sound good? Let's do it. So let's look at the first way that God has designed us and that would be our spiritual gifts. The first way that God has designed us. So if in your Bible you go down a little bit further, starting in verse 7, we're going to read some of the unique spiritual ways that God has gifted us. And I want you to be paying attention as we're reading. Count the number of gifts that are listed in this passage, okay? Count the gifts. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit. Manifestation meaning the way that God clearly reveals himself through your life, okay? Is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the spirit of message uh, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit. And another, faith by the same spirit. 
To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to be able to fly and jump really high and pick up strong cars. Like, I wish that was the case. I wish I had that. But he's really talking about miraculous ways that God works through your life in the life of other people. Okay? To another, prophecy, being able to speak forth the words that God has for another person or a community. To another, distinguishing spirits, or another way that we, we call that would be discernment. To another, speaking of different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these things, excuse me, all these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Why don't we look at verse 7 in a New Living Translation, because I feel like it was very helpful. A spiritual gift is given to each one of us so that we can help each other out, so we can help each other. So let's talk about spiritual gifts for a moment here, okay? Spiritual gifts are gifts that have been given to us by God when we become a Christian. There is a very clear purpose, even you can see in this passage, of why God gave us spiritual gifts. Some of you, when you hear about spiritual gifts, you're like, it's just, uh, you're not familiar with it or you've heard about it, but you're not sure what you are, or what God has gifted you in. We'll talk about how you can discover those today too. So with the gifts were given so that we could help each other, build each other up, and also that God would use those gifts to begin to share about who God is in this world. So none of us, this is key, that none of us have the same, have all of the gifts, okay? So there's not a single person in this room that's got all of them. Where we look at you and we're like, we don't need anybody else, we just need you, right? Just do what you do and then we'll all just sit here and watch. No, no, God has intentionally distributed the gifts to each of us. So the thing is, what you have in your life, I need. I don't have it. And what you have, somebody else in this room needs. So when we, when we don't exercise those gifts, somebody else really needs that in their life. And so we have an opportunity as a body of Christ to develop and to learn who God has made us to be and then start to exercise them for the benefit of other people. So there, you notice a couple of the gifts. I'm just going to read and talk about just a couple of the gifts right now. But in the New Testament, there's at least 20 different gifts over across at least five passages in the Bible. So this is one passage that has a list of a few gifts, but there are multiple gifts in the Bible, okay? So let's talk about the gift of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is when a situation comes about and you're able to apply truth in the best way possible. Some of you in this room have that gift where you just see it happening and then you know what the right thing to do is. We need that gift in the church. Some of us have a gift of knowledge. It's referenced here in this passage. A knowledge is a, a hunger to learn about God's word. And it's an, a desire to study it and to share it with others so that other people are benefited from learning more about who God is in their life. Some of us have faith. Man, some of us have faith. I've seen it. When you could be facing an incredibly difficult time and somehow, some way, you still trust that God is going to work it out. We need people of faith that can come along when our faith it like starts to ebb. And we're like, I don't even know if this is really, if God is really here. I don't know what to do. All of a sudden, your gift of faith comes out and says, trust me, 
I've been there. Trust me. God is faithful then. He'll be faithful now. And they see bigger picture of what God is doing. Some of us have a gift of discernment where you can kind of read people, read situations. Some of you are wondering like, how come I knew that that person was struggling? How did I know that? Well, you have been gifted with the spiritual gift of discernment. So you're able to kind of see what's going on behind the scenes and you're able to recognize truth from untruth. Maybe some of us have the gift of mercy, like my friend Crystal. I think she has the gift of mercy. Her heart breaks when somebody else's heart breaks. You ever been around someone like that? When they don't even have to say a single word, they're just there in the funk. These are the type of people that are, maybe could be a part of our care team at the church where you, like, you cannot wait to go visit someone in the hospital so you can just sit with them. Some of us maybe have a gift of encouragement, like my friend Corey. He's got this incredible gift that he just knows what to say, knows what to text when I need it most. It just picks me up. So the question is, how do I discover these gifts? Well, one thing that you can do is to take a spiritual assessment test. So if you all pulled out your phone and you hit this QR code on your phone, it'll actually take you to a test on our website where you could take it and it'll ask you a bunch of questions and it'll help you to kind of determine what some of your gifts are. Another way that we can determine this is when we are, uh, start to use our gifts. So you're always wondering, well, where do I start? Well, I would just start serving in some capacity and then see what God kind of begins to bring out in your life. And the last thing I'd say is, how do I determine it? Well, ask someone that really knows you. and says, how has God gifted me? How do you think I'm gifted? What do you think I have in my life? And see what he does with that. The next way that we can determine or that we can be uniquely shaped by God is our heart. Our heart is the, is the motivation, the passion in our lives. It's, it's the, the things that we love to do. It's the things that really also bother us. There's sometimes a, a discontentment that comes in our heart. When something in the world is not right, God has put something in your heart that says, you know what, that's just not right. And your heart breaks for things. There's a passage in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 19. It says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. What comes out of you is a huge part of who you are. What is God putting on your heart for other people? What does he want you to do? How has he uniquely made you to care about the things in this world. There's a lot of different kinds of needs that people have in this world. Some of you have, you, you have, a, you have this, this aching in your heart to care for the, the physical needs of those who are suffering. Like when you see people without food that are, that are uh, have no, no place to lay their head, that maybe they're dealing with sickness, it just breaks your heart. You're like, why does this hurt so bad? Because God has given that to you in your heart and he wants to use that to care for other people. There's also maybe even emotional needs. When you, when you hear about someone that's, that's suffering and that's just emotionally dealing with so much and they're just feeling so overwhelmed and your heartbeat is like boom, 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 boom. Man, I just cannot stop it. I want to help this person. Others here may be really moved by spiritual needs where you just feel like, man, 
the spiritual condition of a family member or spiritual condition of our community, of your neighborhood, of your neighbor's home, you're like, man, I just wish so bad that they would know how much God loves them. You could be moved in all of those ways. But here's the deal, though. It's very easy to let life's boredom, the doldrums of your job, feeling like, Maybe, am I, am I even hearing this right? Like God starts whispering into your heart. God starts giving you dreams of what something could become. And it's very easy for us to let those lay dormant. What has God put on your heart that maybe he wants to use in your life? He wants to uniquely use you to bring change in someone's life. Another part of, of learning about who we are is our abilities our abilities are the natural um, giftings that God has given to us. There's a passage in Colossians chapter 3. It says this. And whatever you do, Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what are we talking about? Natural deeds. Well, we're talking about these natural abilities that come to you that you don't even have to try to do it. Some of you in here are natural leaders. Never taught, no one ever taught you to lead. You just start going somewhere and all of a sudden you turn around and there's people following you. Some of us in this room are incredibly artistically gifted. Like that's one thing I love about Pastor Karen is I love when I see her natural gifting in art combined with her pastoral shepherding gifts. It's dynamic when that happens. Some of us in this room are naturally gifted uh, and incredibly athlete, incredible athletes. Like I think of my friend Alex here. Like she uses her natural gifted athletic ability to serve dozens of families every quarter. She's a coach for her kids' little league and basketball and all those things. And when she's doing that, she's not doing it for herself. She's doing it to love those families and to, and to represent God in her life. See, when we take our natural abilities and we say, God, use them. These aren't for me. I thought they were for me, but they're actually for something much bigger. I used to uh, play the guitar. Believe it or not, I used to play the guitar. And uh, when I was a youth pastor, I had to play the guitar because no one else played the guitar. So this guy was strumming some of the worst, awful sounding music ever. But eventually, I kind of got more comfortable with it. And then check this out. One day, someone came into my office, took my guitar out of its case, smashed it on the ground, put it back in the case, locked it back up, and left the room. So I got up to play my guitar, and the head fell off. And I was like, dude, what the heck? It's awful, right? So one day, my dad said, you know what, Brooks? You're doing a lot with that guitar. I want to buy you a new guitar, so I'm going to go get it for you. So he went, and he bought me this really nice guitar. And he brought it to me, and it was way more expensive than the one I had. I mean, mine was junk compared to this. So I was kind of thankful someone broke it. No, just kidding. I wasn't thankful someone broke it. But I was like, wow, thank you so much. And I started playing that guitar a lot, okay? I was getting better. My calluses on my hands. I mean, I look like a legit professional, okay? And I was playing it a lot. And then the thing is, over time, the novelty of a new guitar wore off. And sooner, soon, I started playing it less and less and less to the point where it was in my guitar case underneath my bed, and we've had kids, my wife and I have had kids, we've had kids, um, June is three and a half, Remy's one and a half. I haven't touched my guitar in three and a half years. Here's the thing, that guitar has a ton of dust on it. 
that guitar is not being used. Some of us have amazing natural abilities that have dust on them. That we have incredible natural gifts that God has given us and we're just letting them lay dormant. And this morning, maybe God wants to challenge you, what are you gonna do with those natural abilities I gave you? Do something with them and watch me work through them in your life. Some of us have, all of us have unique personalities. This is another part of our unique shape is our personalities. Psalm 139 says this, for you created, I love this passage, Psalm 139, 13, for you created my inmost being. God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God loves variety. God didn't make us all the same. Our personalities are all so unique. There's room for every type of personality to serve God. Some of us come in there and when we, when we think about, man, I'm just a blank. What can I do? There's room for all of us, okay? God uniquely designed all of us for that. Some of us in here are, are really outgoing and man, I just, wanna, I just wanna meet so many people. I love shaking hands. I love going up to people I don't know. Hey, what's going on? My name is Brooks. And some of you in the room, when you hear that, you're like, cringe. I just feel awful even thinking about that. I'm just going to sit in the corner. Please just let me sit in the corner. I just want to be me, okay? Some of us in here are just, uh, are so people-oriented that it bugs you when someone is a project-oriented person. Don't you care about these people? And the other person's like, don't you care about this project? Sometimes it's easy for us to wish that we were somebody else or to wish that somebody else was like us, Right? I see this all the time in my marriage. I'm married to a very introverted, wonderful woman who's listening in the nursery right now, Heather. I wish a lot of times that she was like me. I would love to have people over all the time. I would, lo I would love to be going out with everybody all the time. And my wife is, is sometimes it feels like she's the opposite. She, she needs time with just our family. She needs time just to be alone, to be quiet, just to have time for us. And if, if she was just like me, then we'd have no time for ourselves. We'd be with everybody all the time. So you see that God has uniquely shaped us so that, and, de and designed us so that we can actually benefit and better other people. So how do we learn about this? Well, there's a bunch of different assessments you could take. There's like strengths finders and DISCs and Myers-Briggs and emotional intelligence. All those things will tell you a lot about how you are, your personality is designed and it can be helpful. And the last Check it out. This is the last one. The last way that God has designed each of us is through our experiences. Job chapter 12, as Job was reflecting, is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? Now, this doesn't mean just because you're old that you're going to be the wisest person on the planet. Because people can still be immature no matter what age you are, Right? But what it does mean is that through life's experiences, we gain wisdom and perspectives. We realize that everything that we've gone through in our life has shaped us for the good or the bad. Our experiences make up who we are. Sometimes we have been shaped by things that are out of our control. You didn't choose your family. You didn't choose to have those health issues. 
You didn't choose to be dealing with depression and anxiety. Some of us have been shaped by the way, the decisions that we've made. Relationships we've been a part of. Moral failures that we've been privy to, that we've made those mistakes on. We were weak in. Maybe in financial decisions. All of that comes together to make who we are. My sister-in-law, Tanya, is an incredible chef. I call her a master chef. I've never called her that before, but that's what she is. She's a master chef, okay? She takes all kinds of crazy things I would never think would be possible to work together, and she puts them together. I would never have thought to ever eat spam, let alone to put it with rice and to put seaweed around it, and it to be like a spam sushi. I would never have thought about that. Sometimes she, she uses different acids and vinegars and garlic and, and pasta sauce or pasta noodles with like an Asian dish. And I'm like, how does this work together? But it does. How? How is this possible? Because she's a master chef. Okay? God in our lives is very similar. In a similar way, God takes all of those things that have disappointed us, that have marked us, marked us, we feel like we're just not the same person anymore. And he puts them together and only God in his incredibly gentle and compassionate hands can bring something wonderful out of that. You see, when we see Jesus, he is the one that is the, we call the wounded healer because he himself has been wounded by the things in this world. So when we come to him with our lives and our, and our mistakes and the things that we wish we had done differently and we bring them to him, he doesn't, come, he, doesn't, he doesn't take it and judge us. He brings us in and with his, with his healing ability and his loving kindness, he says, I can do something with this. Let's do this together. So what has God gotten you through that maybe he wants to use for his glory. Maybe some of us in this room have been divorced and it was incredibly painful and it took you years to finally feel like you were healed and you're at a place of freedom in it. Maybe God wants to use you to care for people who have been divorced in our church community who know what that brokenness and that grief feels like. Maybe it's those of you who maybe have struggled with sexual addiction and you're like, man, I, you were at a point in your life where you thought, I'm never going to be free from this. And over time, God brought healing and freedom in your life. God wants to take that and use it for his glory. We're going to close with this. I grew up in my life, um, my mother was a huge Vincent van Gogh fan. Uh, we had Vincent van Goghs all over the house. I wish that they were real, but they were prints, Okay. We had beautiful Vincent van Goghs all over the house. And I, I grew up really appreciating him. He painted all of his paintings. Do you know, how long, you know how many years he painted? 10 years. He painted over 900 paintings. He had, had at least 1,000 drawings and watercolors in his life. He was a master painter. See, in his hands, this is, this is his, uh, his Iris's painting. In his hands, even the most mundane scenes and images, they look breathtakingly beautiful. But he was also incredible with colors. He didn't just paint for realism, he painted 
for the emotion of the moment. Can you just imagine him coming up here and sitting and just painting this? And his brushstrokes were so demonstrative and so intentional that his paintings often look like they're moving. Some of you may be familiar with his sunflowers the most. Van Gogh used to just paint painting after painting after painting. And at first, when you look at this, it looks, they look the same. But upon closer inspection, you begin to realize how each painting is so beautiful in itself. And that each brushstroke is so important to the work in its, in its entirety. God is a master painter in our lives. God has uniquely designed each one of us. You may look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm just a plain Jane. You may look at yourself in the mirror and say, I, I'm a mistake. I'm just an accident. But when our God looks at us, he sees this incredible work of art that he loves and he is so proud of and he is uniquely designed and shaped for something much bigger than you could ever imagine. So the question is, what is keeping us from showing off this display? What is keeping us from bringing ourselves to this master designer and saying, God, take all of me and use me for your kingdom. Take all of me to serve the world, to love the world. I just want to invite you just to take a moment, just in your own heart, just, just spend a moment just connecting with God, and I'm going to close this in prayer. Just whatever the Lord is putting on your heart here, whatever reasons are in your mind why you can't be used by God, I just give it to him. And then I'll close this in prayer. God, there's nobody in this room that is too old or too far gone. Lord, too many skeletons in the closet. Too broken for you to, with your gentle and compassionate hand, to say, I love you. I got a bigger, bigger plan for your life. Lord, I just pray that you would use this time today to free us to be who you've made us to be, God to stop wishing we were someone else. And Lord, instead, just to accept the amazing person that you've made us to be. And that you are transforming us to look more like your son, God. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for how amazing you are, Lord. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.